Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we will complete our exploration of the FY22 Green Book with a focus on its anti-inversion proposals. The anti-inversion proposals in this Green Book are almost identical to proposals found in Obama-era Green Books and similar in many respects to bills proposed in the House and the Senate. Like a bad penny or a lucky penny, depending on your perspective, these proposals seem to always turn up. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Steve Massad and Andrew Simmons. Steve is a principal in KPMG's WNT M&A and International Tax Practices. Andrew is a managing director in KPMG's WNT Corporate Tax Practice. Both Steve and Andrew have a wealth of experience on cross-border transactions, particularly the application of the anti-inversion rules. Andrew, welcome to the podcast, and Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be back. Before we delve into the Green Book proposals, let's start off with some background on the current inversion rules under Section 7874. Congress enacted 7874 in 2004 to deter or outright prevent a U.S. headquartered company from becoming a foreign headquartered company without a significant change in the ownership of the company. On the theory that such inversions are primarily tax-motivated, facilitating the erosion of the U.S. tax base by, for example, permitting a taxpayer to introduce related party leverage into the U.S. and or engage in out-from-under planning with respect to the U.S. company's CFCs. There are currently three requirements for these anti-inversion rules to kick in. The first is that a foreign corporation acquires directly or indirectly substantially all of the assets of a U.S. corporation or substantially all the trader business assets of a U.S. partnership. This is referred to as the acquisition requirement. The second is the ownership requirement under which the former owners of the domestic entity must own at least 60% of the stock in the foreign acquiring corporation by reason of their ownership in the domestic entity. Foreign acquiring stock owned by reason of domestic entity stock is often referred to as by reason of stock. And then third, after the dust settles, the foreign acquiring corporation and members of its expanded affiliated group, commonly referred to as an EAG, which may include the domestic entity and its subsidiaries after the acquisition, do not have substantial business activities in the foreign country in which the foreign acquiring corporation is created or organized and in which the foreign acquiring corporation is a tax resident. This third requirement, sometimes called the lack of substantial business activities requirement, is, I think, better articulated as an exception. That is, if both the acquisition requirement and the ownership requirement are satisfied, so that the foreign acquiring corporation is effectively a continuation of the domestic target, the transaction will nonetheless not be an inversion 
if the foreign acquiring corporations EAG has substantial business activities in the country of the foreign acquiring corporation. I think it's helpful to view this as an exception, if only because it's an exception that in practice rarely applies. Under current regulations, this exception is satisfied only if the foreign acquiring EAG has 25% of its employees by comp and headcount, 25% of its tangible assets, and 25% of its third-party revenue located or derived in the country of the foreign acquiring corporation. While a foreign acquiring corporation may have more than 25% of each of these items outside the U.S., it is extremely rare that a foreign multinational, particularly one that has just acquired a U.S. multinational, would have more than 25% of each of these items in any single country other than perhaps the United States. In any case, whether Section 1774 applies to any transaction often comes down to the ownership requirement. Indeed, the consequences of meeting each of these requirements depends on the ownership percentage, i.e. the percentage of the stock of the foreign acquiring corporation that is by reason of stock relative to all the stock of the foreign corporation outstanding immediately after the acquisition. If the ownership percentage is 80% or more by voter value, the foreign corporation is treated as a U.S. corporation for all U.S. tax purposes. Let's call this a complete inversion. In effect, your inversion is so severe that the U.S. is simply not going to respect it as having happened at all. If the ownership percentage is between 60 and 80%, again by voter value, the foreign corporation is respected as foreign for U.S. tax purposes, but the inverted U.S. corporation, certain related U.S. persons, and U.S. shareholders of the foreign corporation are subject to certain adverse U.S. tax consequences. Let's call this a partial inversion. Your inversion is bad but forgivable, so the U.S. will generally respect your transaction but now you're going to be subject to certain punitive rules. More on those later. The Green Book proposal would change these rules in several respects. Let's talk about the first big change. The proposal would reduce the ownership percentage necessary for a complete inversion from 80% to 50%, and in so doing entirely eliminate the concept of a 60% partial inversion. Treasury's explanation for this change is that current law does not sufficiently deter partial inversions. Steve, based on your experience, do you agree with Treasury that the current rules are not a significant deterrent to partial inversions? From my experience, the current rules have significantly deterred U.S. entities from engaging in inversions. An almost identical inversion proposal was made in the fiscal year 2017 Green Book. However, since then, The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or TCJA, added several additional adverse consequences for partial inversions. For example, the TCJA retroactively eliminates a U.S. corporation's deduction for its mandatory repatriation inclusion if that U.S. corporation engages in a partial inversion within the 10-year period following the passage of the TCJA, which would increase the U.S. tax rate on the inclusion from 18% to 15%, depending on the amount of cash held outside of the United States, to the full 35% U.S. corporate rate in effect prior to the TCJA. 
The effect of this change, of course, could be significant for U.S. corporations that had a large mandatory repatriation inclusion. Another change made by the TCJA was to remove the preferential U.S. tax rate for qualified dividend income for dividends received by individuals from the foreign acquiring corporation with respect to a partial inversion. This provision increases the individual's tax rate on its qualified dividend income from as low as 20%, which is the current capital gains tax rate, to the regular individual income tax rate, which could be as high as 37%. These are just a few of the changes on top of the already adverse U.S. tax consequences that could be applied prior to the TCJA. Indeed, Treasury and the IRS through regulatory action had significantly reduced the U.S. tax benefits of partial inversions even before the TCJA. Regulations issued in 2016 through 2018 made it harder to erode the U.S. tax base or engage in out-from-under planning after inversion. In particular, I'm thinking about the regulations under 385, which I know you worked on, Gary. Those regulations, though not conditions on the application of 7874, would effectively deny the deduction with respect to a related party leverage pushed into the U.S. company after an inversion. But you shouldn't focus exclusively on the many sticks used to punish inverters. There are also the carrots in the TCJA, including the lower corporate rate, a semi-territorial system, and FIDI. In my experience, these changes have significantly influenced the decision for U.S. business owners to engage in inversions. So for me, it was surprising to see the current Green Book proposal almost verbatim repeat the proposal from the fiscal year 2017 Green Book without mentioning these changes from the TCJA. This fact is especially true considering that in many cases, these rules are stumbled on in non-tax motivated transactions because the complex rules and the regulations often lead to an ownership percentage that does not represent the actual ownership of the foreign acquiring corporation by the former owners of the U.S. target. I'm glad you brought up the broad application of these rules. Treasury seems to assume that the current ownership thresholds, 60% for partial inversions, 80% for complete inversions, are just too high to catch transactions that are, in truth, inversions. But in my experience, as I know in yours, since often we experience these things together, the current anti-inversion rules already often capture transactions in which, in actuality, the former owners of the domestic entity own significantly less than 60% and even less than 50% of the equity of the foreign acquiring corporation after the transaction. As we discussed on a previous episode of the podcast on SPACs, one should assume that every foreign acquisition is an inversion until proven otherwise. Steve, can you provide a little additional color on how these rules can sneak up on folks? Sure. I think where people get tripped up is thinking about the ownership percentage strictly based on the actual amount of buy reason of stock as a percentage of the total foreign acquiring corporation stock actually outstanding immediately after the transaction. Let's think about a basic example. Say individuals own 100% of the stock of a U.S. corporation. The individuals agree to engage in a transaction in which they'll transfer all of the stock of the U.S. corporation to an existing foreign acquiring corporation and receive 49% of the stock of the foreign acquiring corporation in exchange for their U.S. corporation stock. Taking these numbers at face value, we would not expect the inversions rules to apply, either the current rules or the Green Book proposal, because the former shareholders of the U.S. corporation own less than 50% of the stock of the foreign acquiring corporation. The problem is that the real-world cross-border M&A transactions do not involve simple facts like my example. For example, prior to the transfer of the U.S. corporation stock, the foreign acquiring corporation could be formed by shareholders that are unrelated to the U.S. corporate shareholders 
in exchange for cash or marketable securities. In calculating the ownership percentage threshold, the stock held by the unrelated shareholders would not be taken into account under the rules for disqualified stock and could push the ownership percentage over the 60% edge and place the transaction squarely into the inversion rules. Another issue that commonly comes up in this area is related to distributions during the three-year period prior to the transaction that implicate the so-called non-ordinary course distribution or NOCD rules. Going back to the original example, if the U.S. corporation distributed cash to some of its shareholders and redemption of their stock at any point during the three-year period before the acquisition, those shareholders could be treated as having been issued fictional stock in the foreign acquiring corporation under the NOCD rules in an amount equal to the distributions they received from the U.S. corporation, irrespective of whether the distributions were made for non-tax reasons and completely independent of the acquisition. The impact of this rule would be to effectively ignore the distributions that are treated as NOCDs and applying the ownership threshold test. You can see how under current rules, with the exclusion or creation of fictional stock under the disqualified stock rules or NOCD rules, could result in the former owners of the U.S. corporation holding a higher percentage of the ownership in the foreign acquiring corporation than you'd see at first glance. A result that is more pronounced by the fact that these two rules, along with other rules in the 7874 regulations, are applied conjunctively. The reduction of the ownership percentage threshold to greater than 50% creates the false impression that the rules will only apply to a merger of equal U.S. and foreign corporations. But in reality, when you layer on the ownership percentage adjustment rules in the 7874 regulations, the foreign corporation could be much larger. I now want to move to the second way in which the Green Book proposal would modify the current inversion rules. Under current law, for the inversion rules to apply, a foreign corporation must acquire either substantially all of the assets of a U.S. corporation or substantially all of the assets of a trade or business of a U.S. partnership. Both types of acquisitions are referred to as domestic entity acquisitions. The Green Book proposal would expand the types of acquisitions that would fit within the definition of a domestic entity acquisition and thus trigger a 7874 analysis to include, one, an acquisition of substantially all of the assets constituting a trade or business of a U.S. corporation, not just sub all of the U.S. corporation's assets as under current law. Two, an acquisition of substantially all of the assets of a U.S. partnership, not just the trader business assets of a U.S. partnership as under current law. Three, an acquisition of substantially all of the U.S. trader business assets of a foreign partnership. And four, certain distributions from a domestic corporation of foreign stock. Of the three major changes to the inversion rules in the Green Book, I'll admit that the changes to the definition of a domestic entity acquisition left me struggling the most to articulate a policy rationale for, particularly as regards to the treatment of domestic partnerships and foreign partnerships. Andrew, did you have a similar reaction? Yes, Gary, I agree with your reaction to this aspect of the proposal. On one hand, the decision to treat the acquisition of substantially all the assets of a U.S. corporation and U.S. partnership, each as a domestic entity acquisition, would make this requirement consistent. 
But on the other hand, the proposal to treat the acquisition of a U.S. partnership and a foreign partnership differently creates an inconsistency in the rules that I'm not sure is warranted. Given that U.S. and foreign partnerships and their partners are generally treated similarly for U.S. tax purposes. Expanding on that point, I'm not really sure what the policy rationale would be for treating a domestic partnership differently than a foreign partnership. I would have thought that the test should be to look at the identity of the partners and whether the partnership has a trade or business in the United States. To provide an example, let's consider a U.S. partnership with all foreign partners that does not conduct a U.S. trade or business. The income of this partnership would have never been subject to U.S. tax, so there's no U.S. income to erode. In contrast, let's consider the same situation, but with a foreign partnership with all U.S. partners. In this case, all the income from the partnership's operations would be subject to U.S. tax at the partner level. However, under the Green Book proposal, an acquisition of substantially all of the assets of the domestic partnership would be considered a domestic entity acquisition, while an acquisition of substantially all the assets of the foreign partnership would not. These examples pretty clearly illustrate to me the inconsistency of focusing on the domicile of the partnership rather than the identity of the partners and the presence of a trader business in the United States. An important observation here is that private equity and other similar taxpayers commonly use investment vehicles that are organized as partnerships for U.S. tax purposes. Andrew, how would you expect these changes to affect those taxpayers? Well, it would certainly expand the application of the inversion rules to taxpayers in this space. The removal of the trader business requirement in the context of acquisitions of U.S. partnership assets would bring additional transactions into the net of what would be considered a domestic entity acquisition. The inclusion of foreign partnerships would do likewise. So I think it would be fair to say that the expansion of these two rules would increase the number of transactions engaged in by those industries that rely heavily on partnership investment vehicles, like private equity, uh, who could see an uptick in the occurrence of domestic entity acquisitions that could implicate the anti-inversion rules. Going back to the prior discussion on the ownership percentage threshold, Steve mentioned that application of the NOCD rules could apply to treat certain shareholders or partners that receive NOCDs as having fictional interests in the foreign acquiring corporation. Since these rules apply equally to partnership distributions, there are times a transaction could result in an ownership percentage far in excess of 50%, even with no issuance of equity. So expanding the definition of domestic entity acquisition for these partnerships would put additional pressure on the anti-inversion rules. A common misconception is that the NOCD rules don't apply to all cash transactions under the de minimis exception. This exception would apply where two conditions are satisfied. The first condition is that the ownership threshold is less than 5%, ignoring the fictional stock created under the NOCD rules. The second condition is that the former 5% owners of the partnership continue to own less than 5% of the interests in each member of the EAG. In determining whether the ownership threshold in the second condition is satisfied, the constructive ownership rules apply. When looking at whether these conditions are satisfied in a common fact pattern that might arise in the private equity context, the first condition may be satisfied since there is no or minimal rollover. However, it's the second condition that could cause concern. Oftentimes, the structures involve convoluted ownership 
and limited information on the ownership of the investors. Even though this second condition may in fact be satisfied, the expansive application of the constructive ownership rules combined with the convoluted structures involved, along with the lack of information of investors, make it difficult to prove that this condition is met at any level of comfort. The Green Book proposal would also treat as domestic entity acquisition a distribution by a domestic corporation or a partnership of the stock of a foreign corporation if such stock represents substantially all of the distributing entity's assets or substantially all of the assets constituting a trader business. This is the only proposal in this year's Green Book that wasn't included in past Green Books. Andrew, what is this proposal intended to accomplish? So under the current rules, there is an inconsistency in the treatment of certain corporate distributions, depending on whether it is preceded by domestic entity acquisition. Specifically, the current inversion rules would be implicated in a spin-off transaction under Section 355 that is preceded by a de-reorganization in which a domestic entity is transferred to the foreign controlled corporation. This transaction is commonly referred to as a D-355. However, a standalone Section 355 distribution would not be covered by the current inversion rules. This proposal would serve in part to align the U.S. tax treatment of a D-355 with the standalone Section 355 distribution under the inversion rules. But it should be noted that this would be much broader than public spinoffs. This could apply to any distribution of foreign corporate stock by a domestic corporation or partnership, including pursuant to a current distribution, a redemption, or a liquidation, and it could apply to internal distributions as well. Okay, so let's move on to the third and perhaps most significant change to the anti-inversion rules included in the Green Book. The proposal would add a managed and controlled test in addition to the traditional ownership test we've discussed above, by which a domestic entity acquisition would result in a complete inversion, irrespective of the associated ownership percentage. One of the conditions for the application of this rule is that after the acquisition, the foreign acquiring corporation's EAG is primarily managed and controlled in the United States. There's no requirement for any shareholder continuity, so all cash acquisitions are very much in scope here. The managed and controlled test would be a significant departure from our current anti-inversion rules. There really isn't any precedent for applying a similar test for U.S. tax purposes and with the lack of guidance in the proposal itself and what it means to be managed and controlled, it's difficult for tax advisors and taxpayers alike to determine how this test might apply. Steve, can you offer your thoughts on this test and how it might be applied? That's a great question, Gary. I think a starting point would be to look at the other democratic tax reform bills that include a similar managed and control test and look at what they say. For example, the fiscal year 2017 Green Book, the Doggett Bill, and the Durbin Bill also included a managed and controlled test. Unfortunately, these bills don't provide much additional insight. These bills would generally defer to the Treasury and IRS to provide regulations that will define managed and control for purposes of this test. However, each of these bills do direct the regulations to provide that the managed and control test is satisfied if substantially all of the executive officers and senior management are based or primarily located within the United States. So what are taxpayers who are engaging in transactions that may come under the net 
the inversion rules do in the meantime? Based on our experience with the TCJA, final regulations addressing a topic take time to draft, propose, modify for taxpayer comments, and finalize. With this said, the direction for Treasury to consider the location of executive officers and senior management does give a window into where Congress may be headed, but still leaves open questions like whether the test will be an objective test based on a fixed percentage of payroll or headcount or a subjective test that takes into account all facts and circumstances. Taking the latter approach, other countries that use a similar standard for determining tax residency generally look to factors such as where is senior management located, where business operations are conducted, legal factors such as the jurisdiction of incorporation, location of registered office, etc., residents of shareholders and directors, and where key decisions are made, with the last factor generally being given the most weight. Perhaps some of these factors would be part of the guidance Treasury uses to determine place of management and control, although factors based on location may lead to significant ambiguity and complexity given the role that remote working could play in the future. Steve, you mentioned the Doggett and Durbin bills, which also proposed adding a managed and controlled test. One important difference between the Green Book proposal and those other proposals is that the Green Book would require, in addition to U.S. management and control, that the foreign acquiring corporation be bigger by value than the U.S. target immediately before the transaction. This substantiality requirement does not exist in the Doggett and Durbin bills. This is a significant guardrail on the scope of these rules and a significant improvement upon the Doggett and Durbin proposals. Absent a substantiality requirement, a huge foreign multinational managed and controlled in the U.S. could find itself inverted if it purchased for $100 an incorporated hot dog stand on Venice Beach. Indeed, maybe it could invert if it just purchased substantially all of its hot dogs. But Steve, why is the substantiality requirement maybe not a panacea for the potential overreach of the managed and controlled test? I agree that the substantiality requirement is a welcome addition to the Green Book proposals to the managed and controlled test. But as you point out, it might not necessarily be as good as it sounds in practice. First, there could be a disconnect between the assets being directly or indirectly acquired in the domestic entity acquisition and the domestic corporation that is being compared in the substantiality test. For example, a foreign corporation that is being managed and controlled in the United States could acquire substantially all the assets of a domestic corporation's trader business. Those trader business assets could be only a small part of the value of that domestic corporation. But since the substantiality requirement will look to the value of the domestic corporation rather than the value of the trader business assets, a transaction could satisfy the substantiality requirement. A second reason the substantiality requirement may not be as much of a guardrail in practice is that it would likely take into account the NOCD and other anti-abuse rules in measuring the value of the domestic corporation, which could substantially inflate the value of that corporation. Additionally, unless there are exceptions for transactions within existing U.S. managed and controlled groups, internal restructurings within such groups could trigger the proposal. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of questions that remain in the Green Book's anti-inversion proposals, which probably brings us to the most important question taxpayers must consider right at this moment. What will be the effective date of these proposals if enacted? Andrew, now I know you don't own a crystal ball, 
But can you offer your thoughts on potential effective dates? The short answer, of course, is that at this point, we still don't know. The Green Book proposal itself provides an effective date for transactions undertaken after the date of enactment. But that shouldn't cause too much excitement for taxpayers due to the retroactive effective dates and similar proposals. For example, the Doggett Bill would apply to transactions completed after December 22, 2017, the date of enactment of the TCJA, and the Durbin Bill to transactions completed after May 8, 2014. Even Section 7874 itself was applied retroactively to transactions completed in the prior year. So while the Green Book proposal's effective date looks assuring, it shouldn't be given too much weight until we see a more comprehensive bill coming out of Congress. Thanks, Andrew. One final thought before we wrap up. Before I joined Treasury in 2016, while still in private practice, I advised on many transactions that could be called inversions. These were transactions that resulted in a U.S. multinational becoming a foreign multinational that were motivated in whole or in part by the U.S. tax benefits resulting from such redomestication. I rode the second wave of inversions that lasted from 2013 to 2016. But when I returned to private practice in 2019, the world had changed dramatically. While I do have a robust practice today related to advising clients on the anti-inversion rules, it generally entails telling clients that have no idea they have an inversion problem that they have an inversion problem. Indeed, since returning to private practice, I have yet to advise on a transaction that I would frankly call an inversion, at least as contemplated by Congress when enacted 7874 17 years ago. It's impossible to know what stopped inversions. Was it the regulations issued between 2016 and 2018? Or the TCJA? And if the TCJA, was it the TCJA sticks or its carrots? But whatever ended the inversion wave, the wave has ended, and thus the Green Book's anti-inversion proposals seem out of place today. But maybe these proposals are less about the present and more about the future. In that respect, one could view the re-upping of these proposals as a tacit admission by Biden's Treasury that the other tax proposals in the Green Book, particularly raising the corporate rate, including the guilty rate, making guilty a country-by-country determination, and repealing FIDI could make the U.S. a less appealing headquarters jurisdiction and, without these anti-inversion proposals, lead to a third wave of inversions. Stephen, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today and to all of you for tuning in. This wraps up our exploration of the Green Book's proposals for now. As the legislative process progresses, it is likely that we will revisit many of the concepts we discussed over the last three episodes. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these latest developments. Until our next episode, take care. 